Hey everyone, Andrew here. Thanks for listening to the show. Uh, I want to give a quick thank you to everyone who has given reviews and shared the podcast with their friends and colleagues um, by word of mouth or social media. Uh, I can tell that that's happening and uh, I appreciate the efforts. Today on the show, I'm meeting with uh, Dr. Tom Maddox again. He's the director of the Healthcare Innovation Lab here at Washington University School of Medicine. Uh, it's also affiliated with the BJC Healthcare, uh, which is a healthcare system here in St. Louis, and the one that's affiliated, affiliated with uh, the medical school. You'll remember uh, Dr. Maddox from an earlier episode in the series where we discussed about PCSK9 inhibitors. That was released about a year ago. Um, and that's a really great episode. It's not just a discussion about PCSK9 inhibitors, but also more in full a discussion regarding how to cost-effectively reduce your patient population's cardiovascular risk. Um, I really learned a lot, a lot from that discussion in that, that episode. But... I went back to visit with him because uh, there's a new initiative that they're starting, a new study through the Healthcare Innovation Lab, uh, using remote monitoring for heart failure patients. Now, remote monitoring for heart failure patients isn't necessarily a new or novel idea. The idea has been around for a while. In fact, if you looked back in like the 1970s, 1980s, there's old studies using you know, phone calls, uh, structured phone calls with nurses to call and check in on their heart failure patients to try and identify those who are decompensating and need to be seen uh, sooner. Um, but a lot has changed since those times, and there's um, definitely an advancement in technologies and ease of use. So they are working a collaboration uh, with a company out of California. Uh, they're called Maya Labs uh, with a new device, which we'll discuss about. And using that to help monitor uh, heart failure patients uh, here in St. Louis. I think it's pretty exciting and uh, was a pretty interesting discussion. So without further ado, we'll jump right into it. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. For meeting with me today, uh, Dr. Maddox, can I have you first say your name and your title for our audience? Sure. So, Tom Maddox. Uh, I'm a cardiologist, professor of medicine at WashU School of Medicine. My other hat is I'm the executive director for the Healthcare Innovation Lab, which is a collaboration of BJC and WashU. Okay. And I think it's from that other hat in which I'm meeting with you primarily today, because mm -hmm. there's an exciting new pilot program that you're going to be launching here soon about uh, a remote monitoring program for patients with heart failure. Um, kind of tell me, what is the kind of the impetus behind uh, setting up that kind of uh, program for your patients? Yeah, so maybe from the 50,000-foot view, there's a lot of excitement in medicine and cardiology in particular around digital health. And digital health has many facets to it, all mm -hmm. the way from we're digitizing our electronic health records to other forms of collecting digital data on patients. And within that context, one area that's gotten a lot of traction is this idea of remote monitoring. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a recognition that in a variety of conditions, uh, we see the patient periodically in our clinics. Obviously, if they're sick, they'd be in the hospital. But in the grand scope of their 
life, it's a very small percentage of time that we actually are interacting with them. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, uh, there's been a lot of thinking around, are there ways to harness some of the newer telecommunication strategies that have emerged anywhere from obviously we've had telephones forever, mm -hmm. but now we've got, you know, an ability to email each other. We've got an ability to have apps that feed data back and forth, either synchronously or asynchronously. Um, is there a way to harness those communication channels mm -hmm. to give us a more frequent and ultimately, hopefully more informative and effective source of data to complement what we collect in our normal clinic visit or a hospitalization. Mm -hmm. So that overall field is called remote monitoring. Um, and there's been a lot of work in it. Uh, from my perspective as a cardiologist, one of the conditions that was highly prevalent and takes, uh, takes a fair amount of monitoring to stay on top of it is heart failure. Mm -hmm. So some of the thinking um, around doing work in this space is can our lab start to think through some of the technology, some of the data, some of the work processes, some of the people, be it providers and patients and everybody involved in this, mm -hmm. in a way to set up a remote monitoring program that would be an effective adjunct to their current way that they receive care. Okay. Yeah. Now, as a follow from that, in some reading preparing for this, I came across some old, uh, some older studies looking at uh, some sort of remote monitoring programs. And I think even tracing back into the 80s or 90s, there were some like telephone uh, structured like interviews from like nurses, like interviewing patients over the phone, talking about how their symptoms are doing. Um, what um, is maybe what are you uh, kind of modeling your program after? What sorts of uh, uh, pieces are you pulling from to then uh, help you create this pilot program? Yeah, I mean, I think. You know, like I said, the the idea of using um, some form of communications platform to monitor patients between typical clinic visits mm -hmm. has been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. We've been able to call people for a long time. Yeah. And people have studied this, and they've studied it in heart failure, because heart failure is um, a common condition and becoming more common. Um, and I would say the, the evidence is mixed. Um in terms of its effect. And I think one thing that we've noticed is that if you simply set up data to go back and forth between the patient and care team, mm -hmm. and you don't provide an ability to engage that patient ongoing, and you don't provide an effective way to communicate to the care team mm -hmm. in a way that rapidly helps them understand what's going on and then be able to act on that, mm -hmm. typically the remote monitoring communication strategy alone isn't gonna work. So there's been a fair number of studies where the ultimate outcome hasn't been any different than usual care. But when you dig into the methods, you find out that the rates of engagement with patients tends to plummet, particularly after the first month. So not surprisingly, if the patient's no longer providing data, yeah. it's kind of hard for a remote monitoring program to work. Sure. So <clears throat> we, um, we were thinking hard about that. Um, I, you know, maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree, but I still believe that there's value to this idea. Sure. So my operating hypothesis is that there's value to the idea, but if we don't optimize patient engagement strategies and helping our care teams digest the data and act on it in an effective manner, we're going to come up with a null study just like our predecessors. Mm -hmm. So as we started to noodle on that idea a bit, um, our lab got connected to um, 
a small company out in California that was thinking similarly. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, I got a, they were identified by me through the American College of Cardiology. So they'd already had a pre-existing relationship with them. Okay. And the folks in the company are not, they have a chief medical officer, but they're typically not medical folks. They're more technology folks. Uh-huh. But they're, they're, they're quite thoughtful. And I think what they're doing is saying, okay, we know that everybody is super excited about sensors and monitoring, but we need to think about how can we effectively engage those patients and make sure that we're consistently receiving helpful data from them mm-hmm. um, and require relatively effort, relatively low effort from them. Mm-hmm. Um, recognizing that the more we ask a patient to do, the harder it is for them to continue to do that over the long term. Mm-hmm. So to that end, they um, have built a sensor pack. Some of it requires patient activity. They do have to get on a scale. They do okay. have to measure their blood pressure. Mm-hmm. But one of the core sensors that I think is an interesting idea is what they call a ballistocardiograph. Ballistic cardiograph. So the term alone was cool enough for me to make me <laughs> want to work with them, right? But um, And I didn't know what it was either. But it turns out that it is a small device that fits underneath a patient's mattress. And it looks a little bit like a hockey puck. Okay. It's got small little air-filled cells in it. And when you put weight on that puck, i.e. lie in bed, uh-huh. the deformation that it causes gets transmitted into electrical signals. Okay. And the... Sensor is actually sensitive enough to where it can measure, just from a patient lying in bed, a patient's heart rate, patient's heart rate variability, respiratory rate, obviously sleeping patterns, Uh movement during sleep, and a variety of other signals, Hmm. biometric data. And the patient is not measuring any of these. They're not wearing any particular device. They're just simply going to bed. Yeah. And so you get, you know, it's obviously... Only while they're in bed, so typically in the evening hours, um, and it's not going to be for everybody. Still, that's a fair amount of time. Yeah, you know, it's maybe it's a third of the day or something. Yeah, and it's going to give folks a lot of information. Now, they also want to think about they have some activity tags, they have an EKG patch, they have a variety of things to try and get insight about how that patient's doing throughout the course of day and night. Mm-hmm. But at least starting to think about what I would call ambient sensing, mm-hmm. an ability to see what's going on with the patient while they're just living their life and not having to necessarily do anything to collect that data. Gotcha. So that gave me some optimism that, oh, well, maybe this is a way to start to solve that problem, at least in part. Mm-hmm. That was one thing. There were two other things that I thought were attractive about mm-hmm. what they were proposing. The second is you, they generate a ton of data. I mean, think about the number of heartbeats you generate in an evening or the number of times you take a breath yeah. or all the sort of second-order variables that mm-hmm. can be derived from that. So now we're dealing with the classic big data problem. We have a huge amount of data. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine you could just, I guess, I guess, feed all that raw data to a provider. I can tell you as a provider, I'd immediately reject it because I wouldn't know what to do with it. Uh And one of the advantages of trying to do this in 2019 is our analytic tools have started to catch up. Everybody always talks about uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. It's, it's hard to believe that if you have innovation in your title like I do, that you don't say that every day. You kind of have to, right? It's uh-huh. stable stakes. But in, in this case, they actually have a good way of applying it. And that is that they're, um, they have some very smart analytic folks on their staff. And they're working with that data to say what are independent associations that can be seen in that data that our models pick up that might predict even earlier than we otherwise would 
-hmm. impending signs of heart failure decompensation. Mm -hmm. So they're in the process of, of doing those analyses and doing some exploratory analyses. They're working with UCSF on that right now. Mm -hmm. But we in clinical cardiology often think about, are you gaining weight? Are you starting to see signs of volume overload, mm -hmm. uh, increased dyspnea, uh, lower extremity edema? What they have found is that there are some changes in the biometric data that are occurring several days before those covert signs or overt signs are appearing. It's begun to manifest. And one of them, for example, is respiratory rate. They were noticing some changes in the respiratory rate, quite subtle, not even detectable by the patient, hmm. but seeming to be somewhat associated with a track towards decompensation. Interesting. They've got some validation to do. Uh -huh. But if that holds, then we may have the beginnings of some signals that can help us even earlier see what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing that I think they're being smart about is the interface. So we've actually, as part of our partnership, gotten them in front of our clinicians, not just our physicians, but our nurses and other providers who monitor these patients, uh -huh. and said to them, what information would be useful to you and how do you want to see it? Mm -hmm. And they're actually sitting elbow to elbow with the designers that this company has, and they can manipulate how things look on the computer screen and say, well, do you want to see heart rate here? Do you want to see respiratory rate? Do you want to see the two variables on top of each other? Uh -huh. Do you want to see some sort of derivation? What's useful? And what they're finding is, you know, care teams have specific ideas. Um, they want to be able to see essentially a rank order list of patients that appear to be getting into trouble. And when mm -hmm. you walk in and check in at 8 a.m. in the morning, those are the first patients you see on the list. So mm -hmm. you know who to call and start to talk to that it basically is a curated way of seeing all that raw data organized in a way to say, hey, focus your attention here first. Mm -hmm. These other folks look okay. Keep an eye on them, but that can be sort of lower order and priority. Sure. So I think those three areas, mm -hmm. more ambient sensing to ideally improve patient engagement, smart analytic approaches to see what signals are in the data that can help us and an effective and efficient user interface for our care teams mm -hmm. to both triage and ultimately act on those patients who might be, be getting into trouble. Those three, in many ways, I think are unique to what I've seen in other remote monitoring solutions to date. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hopeful that we'll start to learn about ways to, uh, to do this more effectively uh, for our patients' health. Gotcha. So about that first issue about uh, engaging patients, I feel like this is more of a uh, an economics topic about how to help people engage in choosing uh, maybe healthier choices or like more uh, better choices for them in the long term, like uh, rather than short term games, choosing for long term games. And that could be, you know, their dietary indiscretion or taking their medications. Um, is there any um, thoughts or like parts of this uh, program that will help uh, encourage patients on like those kind of more active choices rather than these? Uh, than the data submission-like choices? Um, it's not immediately built into this protocol, mm -hmm. but I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And we've seen in other patient engagement innovations um, some smart approaches to these behavioral economic principles mm -hmm. and these ideas of choice architecture and making it easy to do the right thing mm -hmm. or paying attention to the inherent biases that we all have. We do tend to reward overly um, weight short-term gains for long-term gains. Mm -hmm. um, and so recognizing that and potentially linking something we want to try and do in the long-term to maybe a more intermediate short-term gain mm -hmm. or advantage. 
gamification, for example, has been an approach that has shown some effectiveness, short-term rewards or incentives, um, sure. peer support, or sometimes peer competition, being able to see how you're doing relative to a network that you care about, friends or family or whatever. Gotcha. So, um, like I said, not being built directly into this protocol, but I mm -hmm. think as we learn more, inevitably some people won't be as engaged. This can be optimal. Yeah. And so maybe it'll make sense to build those in. Okay. Then, in regarding the kind of data collecting um, that uh, the ballistic cardiograph. Ballistic cardiograph, Ballistic right. cardiograph. That sounds super interesting. Right. The, uh, <laughs> additionally, I was wondering about uh, whether you'd collect any information from, uh, you know, I hear about people with their ICDs and you can like measure their impedance or there's a, what are they, like the cardio MIMS device cardio MIMS, where sure. they can measure your pulmonary pressures, sure. which I know those devices I think have been validated and shown that they can pick up on signs of decompensation, you know, days before mm -hmm. these overt signs like you're describing. Yep. Uh, any of that information possibly being able to be incorporated here? So, you know, the cardio MIMS trial was, in my opinion, one of the things that I was really informed by when I was thinking through this particular protocol. Okay. And when you think about it, so they, they unequivocally showed benefit. Mm -hmm. It was just, that was great. And when you think about it, at least from a sensing point of view, they're getting wonderful data because it's an implanted device. Yeah. Like the patient literally can't leave it behind. Mm -hmm. And they literally don't have to do anything except get the device put in their body. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so what we're trying to do is can we replicate that without having to do something invasive? Okay. Um, you know, we're not going to put the pulmonary sensors, which are part of an overall ICD system, in mm -hmm. everybody. Yeah. Um, so it's only always going to be a subset of patients that can get the CardioMEMS device. Okay. So I think um, there's always going to need, need some patient activation here. I don't know that we can ever completely get away from that. Mm -hmm. But the more that we can automate and make constant the sensing as a patient gets throughout their life, um, I think the more likely we are to see some of the outcomes we saw in the CardioMEM study. Okay. So uh, you have, sounds like a great way of being able to collect a lot of data and then be able to present that data to clinicians. Mm -hmm. um, what are then like the next steps? Is there any... Um, like uh, like a structured way for say the nurse and like heart failure clinic to be able to look at these and then have some sort of triaged uh, management innovations like call them up and say oh we should increase the dose of your Lasix or something like this or hey you need to come in for an appointment sooner rather than you know in two months from now when it's regularly scheduled yeah you know what we're trying to do is structure this as a strategy trial mm -hmm. so we're simply saying right now our question is if you receive this data as an adjunct to what you already know about the patient, does it assist you in achieving various outcomes? But we're not gonna prescribe what you do once you get that information. Okay. Because quite honestly, it'd be quite individualized. Sure. Um, and in some ways, as long as the care team is at least recognizing that there may be some early signs of a problem, we're largely gonna leave it to them. I can imagine, we'll know more, but I can imagine that they may say, hey, let's talk a little bit about, are you, do you have all your meds with you? Have mm -hmm. you perhaps run out of one? Mm -hmm. Maybe your water bill or something like that. Do we need to think about potentially intensifying some of these meds? Mm -hmm. uh, do we need to think about other conditions that we know can cause some worsening of heart failure? Have you tripped into atrial fibrillation, for example? Mm -hmm. Is your blood pressure really high because you're 
really annoying brothers on your couch for the last three days and it's driving you crazy. Uh-huh. You know, just individual things like that. But, I, you know, our care teams are pretty good at sort of doing that detective work. What we simply want to do is give them a way to sort of alert those folks, alert them to those folks where more in-depth detective work might be needed. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So how are you going to roll out this program? I'm, I guess maybe the more specific question is what patients are you going to be inviting to participate in this first? Or is it just like one clinic and they're going to use all, all of that? Like yeah, we're gonna we're gonna start with one set of clinics, and okay. that is our heart failure clinics through the WashU's Division of Cardiology. Okay. So the primary investigator or the principal investigator for the trial will be Greg Ewald, uh-huh. who's the director of our heart failure program here mm-hmm. at WashU. Um, he's got a couple of colleagues, Justin Vader and Justin Hartby, who are also heart failure specialists. Through the three of them, um, along with some of their associated uh, colleagues. We think we can identify enough patients for the pilot. We're angling to enroll 200 patients. Mm-hmm. We think that'll take uh, somewhere around six to nine months, just based on sort of the rate that we see these patients. Mm-hmm. Um, we're targeting folks who have reduced heart failure, reduced ejection fraction, so EFs of less than 40%, partly because we have a fairly codified set of therapies that we know are beneficial for them. Sure. We're also trying to select for a slightly higher risk group. So these are folks that typically will have two to uh, heart failure association class two to three symptoms mm-hmm. um, and have been hospitalized for a heart failure episode at least once in the last year. So that we think will give us um, a high enough event rate to where we think we can, baseline event rate, to gotcha. where we think we can make an incursion on that and start to drop them down. Okay. And the outcomes that you'll be following would be? So a variety of things. And we, we try to think about this through all our innovation projects. We want to try and track uh, outcomes in four domains. So we want to think about the technology acceptability to our patients and to our providers. So with the sensors, we're going to be surveying our patients. Were you able to set it up? Does it work okay? Um, do, you know, for the, for the scale and the blood pressure and whatnot, is it something you can use mm-hmm. or do you need help with it? Um, you know, when we set the ballistic cardiograph up, is the power, is the power on? Uh-huh. Are we getting data? Um, are we getting it in the mouth that we thought it w- yeah. would? Is it princess in the pee and does it like? Yeah. Does it work there? Yeah. Do you, do you not sleep in your bed? Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah. we're getting no data. <laughs> yeah. So we've got some sort of adoption things to do. We also mm-hmm. want to do that for our care teams. Is the interface what you expected? Is this helpful data? Mm. Are there, is there other data you wish you could see? Sure. Is there data you never use? And so we shouldn't give up screen time real estate for that. So I think a lot of this is going to be sort of the technological feasibility of what's going on. Gotcha. That's one area. Okay. Second area is satisfaction. For patients, is this something that works for you? Are you satisfied with it? Does it feel creepy? Is it like Big Brother? Uh-huh. Or do you feel more cared for? Do you feel like you're more connected to your care team? Uh-huh. Or neither? You know, is it something else? On the care team side, is this helpful? Is it yet another thing in an already chaotic day uh-huh. that's just driving you crazy? Is it causing you to work at 11 at night and increasing burnout? Mm-hmm. What are we doing here? Are we accidentally causing a problem in our attempt to solve one? Yeah. So that's user satisfaction. The third domain is clinical efficacy. So we're looking at um, some, what I'd say, intermediate and longer term outcomes. So intermediate We're looking at, um, are we able to uh, get get a sense of how your symptoms are? 
are we able to sort of have an ongoing quality of life measurement um, uh, and be assessed with this program? So how are your symptoms doing? Are they worsening? Are they stable? Are they getting better? Mm -hmm. We're also looking a little bit at med titration. We know that these patients with low EFs benefit from three different types of medicines. And can we start to help you get on the highest optimal dose for you? And in some cases, like with beta blockers, some of the parameters we use are heart rate and blood pressure, which we're getting from you most days. Mm -hmm. Can we use that to more rapidly get you to your optimal dose of beta blocker than we would otherwise? Sure. Are there other ways that we can do that? So those are some of the intermediate outcomes. And then longer term, of course, we're looking for ways to avoid some of the acute worsening episodes. Do you have to go to the ED as often? Do you have to call in more often? Do you have to get, do you get hospitalized more often? Mm -hmm. um, or are these, is this sort of care innovation helping avoid some of those outcomes? So that's clinical efficacy. And then the final thing is financial viability. Mm -hmm. So if we want this to work long-term, if we ultimately have this product or some other product that we bake into our health system, there's a cost associated with that. Yeah. And how does that work for our healthcare system? What's the cost of the process? Does it add any additional cost to our care teams? And then are the outcomes that we generate providing either cost savings? And that's mm -hmm. particularly relevant if we're dealing with patients who are in what we'd call an at-risk population, where the health system is at risk for any additional costs for those patients. So, for example, ACOs, or if they're in a bundles um, care pathway, or if they are part of our employee health plan, where we not only provide their care, but we also pay for their care. Uh -huh. So can we reduce the total cost of care to get them to an optimal clinical outcome? Sure. Um, and then finally, just this year, CMS has started paying directly for remote monitoring activity. Oh, hmm. So there was some initial payments already. Okay. We've essentially doubled them. Oh. So now we get paid for a certain amount of time that we dedicate to reviewing data that's coming in from a remote monitoring program. What does that do for our revenue generation? Hmm. And can that help us underwrite some of the costs that it would take to have the technology and data analytics in place? Gotcha. So we're going to be doing, if you will, a business case analysis uh, return on investment calculations mm -hmm. to see, yes, it's great, assuming it works clinically, is it worth it? Or is it crazy expensive to get those clinical outcomes? Uh -huh. So it's those four areas, technological adoption, user satisfaction, clinical efficacy, and financial viability that not only informs this project, but frankly informs all of our projects in the lab. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Now, I think maybe one of the last things I'm kind of curious how you go about... Um, setting this up. So you've already mentioned that there's this uh, company in California that you had some prior uh, relationship with. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking more about here, um, like negotiating with the healthcare system here, you know, BJC, mm -hmm. what sort of buy-in or what sort of groups you had to coordinate with to be able to say, yeah, we're going to go forward and like make this happen. Yep, absolutely. So as, as you can imagine, the first step is do we have clinical champions Mm -hmm. that are excited about this and are willing to help us think through the clinical aspects of it. So our first outreach was to the division. And speaking to Greg and Justin and Justin and the other folks who have some fellows involved, um, all of them were getting pretty interested in sort of the unique ways mm -hmm. that this particular company could sort of approach remote monitoring and okay. became interested in sort of thinking about that. Uh, we did get some patient input. And even though they may not be the ones that are directly enrolled in the trial, at least they sort of got the idea and thought uh -huh. it might be useful. So we wanted to make sure that that was at least a viable idea in their minds. Uh -huh. 
Um, in addition to the docs, we talked to a fair number of the heart failure coordinators and other nurses in our division. Uh-huh. In some ways, they were even more interested because, quite honestly, they're doing the work. Sure. They're the ones calling the patients. Uh-huh. They're the ones who, over time, have developed these long-term relationships just alongside the docs. And in many ways, we'd often hear from them. They're like, oh, man, this would actually be great for Mr. Jones, who uh-huh. in many ways would respond to this kind of intervention. So they seem to get excited about that. Okay. The other group that we went after, though, two other groups. One was the operational leadership for our cardiac service line. So we wanted to say to them that, hey, we're kind of thinking about this approach. What would you need from a business and financial point of view to make this even the beginning of a conversation? Uh-huh. And that's where we got informed a lot about, well, it would depend on if cost savings are something we're looking for in this population. You know, one of the funny things about where we are in the U.S. healthcare system is we're still largely a volume-based reimbursement system. Yeah. So if we keep people out of the EDs and hospitals, are we actually losing money as a system? Uh And in some cases, we are. That's not our sole goal as a health system. And I think our operational leaders are quick to say, yeah, but we don't want them there unnecessarily. And we have plenty of people that we have in the hospital. Mm -hmm. If we're getting people to... Um, uh, forego an unnecessary hospitalization, it allows other people who really need to be in the hospital to be in there a little bit more quickly. Yeah. So even though, you know, they technically lose the reimbursement from that hospitalization, that's mm-hmm. not a big deal. Yeah. They also are part of the hospital readmissions reduction program. So there's a penalty for unnecessary hospitalizations. Yeah. And so avoiding that can help them on those metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, like I was saying about the CMS changes and reimbursement for remote monitoring, they also were curious to know if this actually could be a new source of revenue generation, or at least, you know, it's not going to like bring in a ton of money, sure. but at least could help offset the cost of the program. Sure. And then I think they were like, well, how much would this cost? You know, <laughs> how much am I going to have to pay to get this? And let me just think through if that makes sense. Yeah. So I think having those conversations early on allowed us to ask those questions of the company. The company obviously needs to answer those for their business viability sure. and their marketing, um, not even marketing, just their, their business case. Yeah. Um, and so I think it was really helpful both for them and for us to think about long-term implementation. Okay. And then the final thing was IT. So this is a technological solution. Uh-huh. Right now, we're not going to integrate it with Epic in the first go-around. But if this were to become sustainable, it absolutely has to integrate with Epic. Oh, sure. So how do we do that? We just went live less than a year ago. We've got a whole crew of people moving from the install to the optimization of it. They're thinking about, well, Epic is fine and does a lot of things well, but it doesn't do everything well. And so if we need these outside solutions, which we always will in part, how do they talk effectively to Epic? The business is obviously interested in that as well, the company in California. So, you know, talking to them, starting to think through how integration would work has also been part of the conversations we've had. So three, kind of broadly, three sets of stakeholders, clinical, operational, and IT. Gotcha. Very cool. When might this be rolling out? When do you anticipate that? We are uh, on the cusp of signing our scope of work agreement with the company. So that should be done ideally in the next week or two. Mm -hmm. We are uh, drafting the IRB protocol. So it needs, this is a research study. We need to protect our patients. Sure. So we'll go through the IRB uh, approval process. Where are we? Early March. My hope is to have that wrapped up. Um, by the end of March, mid-April, mm-hmm. uh, we'll have to do some logistical coordination with our um, enrollment folks over in the Division of Cardiology. Mm-hmm. But I'd be hope- hopeful that we could open up for business and start enrolling patients in May. 
Gotcha. And then the idea would be, like I said, six months or so, hopefully, mm -hmm. to get to our 200 patients. And we want to track them for six months. So I think we're looking at roughly a year, maybe a little bit more, gotcha. to get through the process of getting folks enrolled and following yeah. for the records in six months. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, we'll have some intermediate outcomes to share. But then at the end, we'll be able to aggregate all of the outcomes, uh, certainly present it back to our health system. Uh, our plan is to publish this in the peer-reviewed literature yeah. uh, to contribute to generalized knowledge around remote monitoring. And then talk to the various stakeholders on our health system. If it's beneficial, is this something we want to more officially implement and try and scale across the system. Very cool. Yeah. Well, sounds very exciting. Thanks for, uh, thanks for letting me come and talk with you about it. Of course. Always happy to share. There you have it, folks. I'm excited to see how the pilot program goes. While the ballistic cardiograph is not specific to Maya Labs, perhaps in combination with their machine learning algorithm, it can provide useful information to our physicians. I think I subconsciously really want this to work, mostly so that I can keep saying that word to my future patients. Mr. Jones, how are you using your ballistocardiograph? Thank you for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This series is co-sponsored by MedPage Today and by the Division of Medical Education at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free, whose song Night Owl on their album Directionless EP, I Have Used.